Listener Production. Laura Nyrider is the Director of the Centre on Wrongful Conviction of Youth. She has taught widely about the methods and mistakes which can manipulate young people into false confessions. Laura is most known for her work with Brendan Dassey, a mentally impaired youth sentenced to life in prison on the Netflix blockbuster Making a Murderer. Laura says, What's drawn me in for so many years is that this work is good, this work is valuable. In this intimate conversation, Laura and I talk about why false confessions in children are so prevalent, the fright for Brendan Dassey's release, and why making a difference in the world is so important. There's no feeling in the world like watching someone walk out of prison a free man or woman. It's like watching someone who's dead come back to life. And to be able to help that person rebuild their life, and then to be able to take their story, the story of the injustice that they endured, and use that to build change, you know, that's an exciting thing. It's a thing I'm very lucky to be able to do. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Laura Nyrider is a Clinical Associate Professor of Law. In partnership with the International Association of Chiefs of Police, she has co-authored one of the only existing juvenile interrogation protocols. Laura currently resides in Chicago. So, Laura, corporate law was something that you wanted to do, but you changed paths when you met Stephen Drizzen. What drew you to this line of work? It's a great question. You're right. Um, When I went to law school, I thought I was going to be a corporate lawyer. In fact, I had a job as a business lawyer all lined up for after I graduated law school. I thought I had my life figured out. Um, And while I was in law school here at Northwestern University in Chicago, I was in my final year. I had finished all of my requirements. I was looking for something completely different to study, a different kind of class to take, something totally off my radar screen. And on a whim, I decided to sign up for Steve Drizzen's class on wrongful convictions. And, you know, this is about 11 and a half years ago, but I remember it really well, actually. It was a couple weeks into the fall semester, the first semester of the year-long class. Steve called me into his office and he said... I've just gotten involved in a case out of Wisconsin involving a 16-year-old boy with intellectual disabilities who confessed to a murder that I don't think he committed. You know, Steve handed me these, the interrogation videos of Brendan Dassey, the same videos that ended up in making a murderer. And he told me to go home and watch these videos. Um, And I did. As a law student, I brought them home. I sat down on my couch. I put these DVDs into my laptop and I watched them from start to finish and my heart broke to see these police officers manipulating a scared 16-year-old boy into confessing to a murder that he couldn't even describe. And that was a moment in which my life changed. You know, I knew that, um, that someone had to help Brendan and that I wanted to be a part of that effort. So, you know, this was an incredibly 
life-changing moment for me that all started with Brendan Dassey in this case and uh, Steve's class on wrongful convictions. I, I graduated from law school and went on to not be a business lawyer after all, but to come back and form the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth with Steve, where we've been fighting for Brendan and other kids just like him ever since. So, Laura, your most high-profile case is that of Brendan from Making a Murderer, which was obviously a huge Netflix documentary, one of the biggest at the time and still huge now. Can you take us through this case and your role with Brendan, which was obviously what got you into um, doing uh, this line of work? Sure. Uh, Well, the Netflix series Making a Murderer is based on a case out of Wisconsin in the United States uh, involving the murder of a young woman named Teresa Halbach. Um, This happened in 2005. And the story was very big news even at at the time in 2005, long before any Netflix show was made, because one of the men accused of Teresa Halbach's murder was a Wisconsin resident named Stephen Avery. Stephen Avery uh, was a well-known name in Wisconsin because three years before Teresa Halbach's disappearance, he had been exonerated by DNA evidence of a rape that he did not commit, but for which he had served 18 years in prison wrongly. Uh, So he was released uh, to great fanfare. Um, He had a lawsuit pending against the state. Legislation was being named after him. And then this, this woman goes missing and he's charged with her murder. Um, This was a huge sort of earth shattering story in Wisconsin. Stephen Avery was arrested in November, 2005. And about four months after his arrest, police who were still investigating Teresa Halbach's death um, interrogated Stephen Avery's 16 year old intellectually impaired nephew, Brendan Dassey under the belief that Brendan knew something or perhaps had helped his uncle kill Teresa Halbach. Brendan ended up confessing um, to this crime in a confession that has been sort of universally <laughs> rejected since, since that time as a false confession and an absolutely prototypical coerced confession. But it was a confession that was enough to convict Brendan Dassey, sentence him to life in prison, And my colleague and I, Steve Drizzen, have been representing Brendan now for going on 11 years um, ever since he was convicted. Brendan has a learning disability, doesn't he? How old is Brendan? Yeah, well, Brendan was 16 when this happened to him in 2006, but today he's 29. Um, So he has grown up. He has grown up, and you're right, he has um, learning disabilities and other intellectual disabilities. His IQ is right on the borderline of intellectual disability, what used to be called mental retardation. Uh, It's been that way, of course, his whole life. He was in special education as a student when he was a student in elementary school, middle school. And he's got a host of disabilities that center around language for him. It's a really hard time understanding, processing language, gets really easily overwhelmed by words. So his language skills are like that of a eight, nine, 10 year old. So that's, that's the person who was in the interrogation room when he was being questioned, right? Not some seasoned belt killer. And he was by himself when he was in the interrogation room. He was, yeah, he was by himself, which in Wisconsin and most states in the United States is totally legal. It's perfectly fine for police to question kids, even disabled kids like Brendan, without notifying a parent in most states. Wow. So what tactics did they use when they were interrogating Brendan? 
Well, the tactics that these investigators used during Brendan's interrogations, which were all caught on, on tape, are the same tactics that we see over and over again in the hundreds of proven false confession cases that we know about, right? Um, they involve bringing a person down to a place of hopelessness, convincing him that he's in real trouble, he's got very few options, and then offering confessing as a life raft, as a way out of this hole that, that the person suddenly is told they're in. So for Brendan, when the police came and questioned him, he was told out of the blue that the prosecutor was thinking of charging him with involvement in the murder of Teresa Halbach or, or in the involvement in the cover-up of the murder of Teresa Halbach, which was false. Yeah, it was totally kind of, false. isn't that illegal? It's not illegal. It's perfectly legal really? in the United States for, yeah, for police to lie about evidence during an interrogation. So they, they falsely tell him that the prosecutors are looking at him, looking at charging him. And then they say to him, Brendan, you know, we can, we can see you're scared of arrest, yeah. but don't worry. As long as you fill in the blanks, you're going to be okay. You're going to be all right. We're going to go to bat for you. You're going to have nothing to worry about. And on and on and on, over and over this goes, over the span of four different interrogations over a period of 48 hours. So Brendan thought if he told them what they wanted to hear, he could go home. Absolutely, yeah, he did. And, and folks who watched Making a Murderer will remember that from the show. After he confesses to rape and murder, after he adopts the story that he's given, he asks if he can go back to school. I know, right? that is so sad. One of the most heartbreaking moments of the series. And the reason he thinks he's going to go back to school after confessing to murder is precisely because he's, he's told everything's going to be okay. You're going to have nothing to worry about so long as you fill in those blanks, which is exactly what he does. And in fact, the police help him fill in those blanks by telling him exactly what they think happened to Teresa Halbach. So what, what kind of language do they use to do that? And what does Brendan say? Well, when they're telling him, you know, the type of story they want him to hear, I think the best example of that is when he's describing, trying to describe the murder of Therese Halbach itself. Um, you know, the police knew or they think they knew based on their investigation that she had been shot in the head. And so they're asking Brendan about the way in which she was killed. And they're waiting for him to describe the act of shooting someone in the head. But when he starts to try to describe the murder of Teresa Halbach, he offers a whole series of different ways of killing someone, all of which are completely wrong. He guesses that she was choked and they have to tell him no, something else. He guesses that she was stabbed. They have to tell him no, something else. They even start giving him hints. Um, Brendan, it's something with the head. It's something with the head. And he just can't come up with shot in the head until they finally say it to him. They say, Brendan, I'm just going to come out and ask you who shot her in the head. And it's only at that point, only after he's been given the right answer, that he can describe with any accuracy the way in which this woman was killed. That's absolutely shocking. So then what happens to Brendan after that? Well, Brendan's interrogated four times over 48 hours. During the last fourth interrogation, he repeats this story that he's, he's told to say. He embellishes it with some details that he comes up with on his own that turn out to be false um, because those are details he's making up just to satisfy his interrogators. And after he finishes confessing, you know, that's another one of the 
heartbreaking moments of of the interrogation video and of the show, uh, because it's at that time, only after he confesses that the police allow his mother, um, who has arrived at the police station sometime during the interrogation, they finally allow her into the room to talk to him after he's confessed. And, you know, they let her in the room, the cameras are still running, they leave the two of them alone, and they say, and, and Barb, his mother, comes over to him and she says, you know, Brendan, did you do this? Oh. And he says to her, not really. And she says, what do you mean, not really? And Brendan says, they got to my head. Oh. Yeah, that's him telling his mother what just happened to him in the interrogation room. You know, that's him doing his best to explain why he just confessed to a murder that he didn't commit. So knowing all of that and obviously watching my Hugh Murderer myself and seeing those videos and they they are horrific and shocking and it's awful to think that adults can take advantage of a child like this and especially people in the police force. How is this boy still in jail? Really, really good question. That's exactly right. Well, there's a lot that goes into that question, right? How was he convicted in the first place? And then why didn't the appeals succeed? Um, Why wasn't he convicted? Why was he convicted in the first place? Has a lot to do with the way that his trial was handled. People who watched Making a Murderer will remember his pre-trial lawyer, Len Kaczynski. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, Yes, (laughs) you remember him. (laughs) Um, you know, the, the lawyer whose job it was to defend Brendan to get that confession thrown out before trial so a jury wouldn't be misled by it. Um, and of course, we all remember that instead of loyally representing his clients, you know, Len Kaczynski worked to basically frame his own client further, work with the state to, to convict him instead of defending him. Um, so that was a huge, huge problem for Brendan, of course, at the time of his trial, being represented by someone who's who's trying to do you in rather than defend mm. you. Um, as for the appeals, you know, once we became involved in the case, we knew we were fighting at that point an uphill battle because we were representing someone who had confessed to murder and been convicted on the basis of that confession. We do this all the time. That's a big part of our practice is representing kids who falsely confessed. And we know that even in a case like Brendan's where the confession seems like obvious, obvious garbage, right? I mean, you don't have to be a lawyer to see the problems with Brendan's statements. Still, the system makes it incredibly difficult to free someone after they've been convicted. Um, Why is that? Well, the idea behind that is to make the jury trial, the moment of trial, the most important moment, right? Let's focus everybody's attention on that moment, make everybody take it seriously, make the jury understand that this is the big moment of decision. Um, And then subsequent appeals are designed to defer to that decision of the jury, to respect it, to defer to it, to um, bend to it, even when there are good reasons not to. Um, and so that's the mountain that you have to climb when you're doing any criminal appeal, even in the case of somebody innocent, even when there are obvious problems, like with Brendan's case, you have to fight against a system that's designed to elevate the jury's decision almost uh, above almost everything else. Um, so why didn't these appeals process though? Why didn't these appellate courts see the problems with Brendan's confession that are so obvious? Well, there's an easy answer to that question. And it's something that is surprising to people who aren't lawyers, um, the answer is that in the United States, we don't have any constitutional right 
not to be convicted based on a false confession. The Constitution doesn't protect us from being in prison based on a false confession. The only protections we get are against being imprisoned based on a coerced confession, a forced confession, something you've been forced to say. So the arguments you have to have in court, the only chance of winning it is if you can convince a court that Brendan was forced to confess. And the problem with that is that the law in Wisconsin and across the United States doesn't understand, doesn't reflect the reality of the situation in which Brendan and kids like him find themselves. Too often courts say, well, you know, there was no gun to his head, right? People didn't physically abuse him. He wasn't being slapped. He wasn't being pushed. He wasn't being tortured. So he wasn't forced. So whatever problems I may have with this statement, I can't say it was forced. That's exactly what the courts ended up ruling in Brendan's case. He may have been tricked. He may have been manipulated. He may have been duped, but he wasn't physically forced. So the law doesn't prevent what happened to Brendan Dancy. That was the ultimate ruling. Obviously, you are a director at the Wrongful Convictions of Youth, which is a non-for-profit legal clinic that represents children and teenagers who have been convicted of crimes they didn't commit. So this is something you see every single day. Why would children give false confessions in the first place? Like we know Brendan's case, but why is this so prevalent? It's prevalent because the tactics that you see in Brendan's case are used every day in interrogation rooms across the United States on adults and kids alike. The big shocker that, you know, is not well explained in making a murderer is that the way you see these police officers questioning Brendan, that's how police are trained to question people, even kids, even disabled people regularly in the US. In fact, I pretty much guarantee that as we're sitting here talking, there is someone right now being questioned, probably in my city, Chicago, using it exactly the same techniques that were used on Brendan Dassey. But why is it, do they feel that if they interrogate them just in a more kind of natural manner that they're just not going to get the outcome that they want? I mean, surely the police must know that maybe some of these kids didn't do it, but it, what, is it just easier to, to put someone in jail than have no one at all? It seems bizarre. Well, the interesting cases are the ones in which, you know, police inadvertently secure false confessions. I think those are some of the most interesting cases because you can see then even when these these interrogation tactics are placed in the hands of officers who are really trying to solve crimes, who are trying to get the right people, who are trying to do the right thing, these techniques are still so problematic that even in the hands of good people, they can still cause false confessions. In fact, I work with a police officer who used to be, he's a 20-year veteran of the Washington, D.C., uh, police force. He's a detective, homicide detective from Washington, D.C. And he inadvertently took a false confession using these techniques and didn't realize it until he went back and watched the videotape and sort of realized, my God, I was feeding her all this information in the heat of the moment. I didn't realize it. Um, his name is Detective Jim Trainum. He's now written a book and become a major advocate for reforming interrogation techniques because he had what for him was a life-changing experience of, of doing this accidentally. How are you guys changing this problem? Because it just seems to be huge. It is a huge problem and it's something we've been working at here for, you know, 
years, for decades. Um, we've been working hand in hand with law enforcement, with psychologists, with the, with the defense community, with the juvenile justice community, parents, teachers, everybody who's touched by this problem, even crime victim groups. Um, we've been working to change the way that police question kids and to change the laws around the United States that protect children in the interrogation room. So one thing we fight for is recording, electronic recording inside the interrogation room. Right now, only about 26 states require interrogations to be videotaped. So that means in 24 states, yeah, in 24 states, there's gonna be no record at all of what happened inside the interrogation room. And that number 26, you know, when I started doing this work, it was only about four states that recorded. Oh. So that's exploded over the, yeah, exploded over the last 12 years or so. Um, so that's taking off. And I've, I have hope that it's, that we're going to get to 50 states, um, you know, hopefully over the next 10 years, if not much sooner than that. But it's other stuff too, you know, recording is important, but we've been working hard to fight for lawyers in the interrogation room for children, right? My home state, Illinois, just adopted a law after making a murderer, after a rash of false confessions by kids here in Chicago that requires lawyers inside the interrogation room for very young kids, kids under 13. That's fabulous. Being questioned. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great start to solving this problem and it's a solution we're hoping to export. I know there was a, a boy, Charles Johnson, who was wrongfully convicted of a double murder and you guys actually got him exonerated. And he spent 20 years and nine months in prison. Yeah, Charles and his co-defendants were involved in a case here in Chicago. They were known as the Marquette Park Four. That was a case in which multiple kids falsely confessed and implicated each other, just like the Central Park Five case, which of course is all over Netflix right now in When They See Us. These are cases involving multiple kids who all confess falsely to the same crime. Um, in Charles's case, it was to the murder of a used car um, lot attendant on the south side of Chicago. And as you said, Charles did 20 years based on that false confession before fingerprints um, excluded him and his co-defendants and re resulted in his exoneration. But you just see these cases over and over. You know, we've also been involved in the West Memphis Three case, which is a very, very high profile case out of Arkansas from 1993. It was in the HBO series, um, Paradise Lost. It was in a movie made by Peter Jackson and Amy Berg called, called West of Memphis. There've been a number of documentaries made about this case from Arkansas in which um, three teenage boys were accused of murdering three little eight-year-old boys from their community, West Memphis, Arkansas. And one of the teenage boys, a 17-year-old with intellectual disabilities named Jesse Miss Kelly, was interrogated just like Brendan, no parent in the room, fed facts about the crime, you know, the whole thing. And just like Brendan, he ended up giving a confession to murdering these three little boys and implicated the other two teenagers along with himself. The oldest of the three teens, Damien Eccles, was sentenced to death. And they spent, the other two were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, and they did close to 20 years in prison before we and a large team of lawyers got involved in the case. Um, Steve and I were part of the team representing Damien, the one who had been sentenced to death. Um, and we secured their release in 2011. Say, so for example, that case. How do you know in your heart of hearts that it was a wrongful conviction? 
Yeah, it's a very good question. When you look at these cases, at false confession cases, which is almost all we do, you notice patterns, right? We've reviewed hundreds and hundreds of cases like this. And you notice patterns in the way that the interrogations work. Now that the presence of a pattern doesn't mean that someone is definitely innocent, Mm. but it's a red flag. It makes you start digging. It makes you look further. So if I see a child with disabilities being interrogated alone, who's being told that everything will be okay. He'll get to go home. He'll get get to go back to school. So long as you repeat this story that I feed you, right? And I see the child doing that. And I see the child asking to go home, asking to go back to school after confessing to some horrible crime. I see the child repeating back facts that are being fed to him. Importantly, if I see the child trying to describe the crime on his own and getting it wrong, unless he's told the right answer, that's a red flag right mm. there. I've had cases where kids, you know, it's their, their drive-by shootings involving a black car. And the person says, the kid says, well, it was a white car. And he has to be told, no, it was black. You know, this happened in the middle of the day. No, 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 it was the middle of the night. It was pitch black outside. Um, those kinds of obvious errors are red flags. Um, and then you, you start it. So once you see a case with, a re- with red flags like that, with a confession that's not corroborated, by physical evidence, one that's disproven maybe by the physical evidence that's available, one that doesn't match what the physical evidence can tell us what re- about what really happened, you start digging, you know, you start digging further, you start talking to witnesses, you start doing forensic testing. Is there DNA that we can test? Are there fingerprints that we can test? Are there new witnesses that we can find? Um, and you start digging and digging and digging and it can take years and years and years until you reach a place where you know, you know, this is someone you're going to fight for. Um, And then you fight. These kids, some of them have been in jail for double the amount of time that they've been alive. Right. How is that for them when, when they come out and for their families? Well, it's a important question. And the answer is it's not easy. Mm. Right. It's, it's not easy. Um, Of course, you know, these (laughs) kids, when this happened to them, adults, when they're released, they've been through enormous amounts of trauma, you know, everything from the interrogation itself to whatever media coverage surrounded their trial to the trial itself, of course, to the years in prison that they spent being separated from their families. It's very hard. Um, Our center is very focused on supporting our clients as much as we can, we have a social worker on staff. We have people in place who, you know, have worked with people who've gotten out of prison after doing years and years of, of unjust time. So we think about things like, you know, everything from housing, where are you going to live? Who's going to take care of you to therapy, to counseling, medical support, if it's needed, educational support, job training. How are you going to get that first state ID on your first day out? You know, how are you going to rent that first apartment? How are you going to figure out how to use an iPhone, Mm. how to use a cell phone? Um, How are you going to remember to cross a street? Things like that that people forget after they've been locked up for 20, 25 years. Um, We are very focused on supporting our clients when they get out as much as we can, helping them work through that trauma, helping them land on their feet, helping them fight through um, those obstacles and have a successful and productive, you know, experience as much as possible when they're back out in the world. And I'm really proud of our clients. They've done remarkable things. Some of the most incredible, resilient people I've ever met. 
there was obviously something inside of you that that said, no, this is, I, I want to make a difference in this world, which is an incredible thing. And why, why do you think that is? Well, you know, um, making a difference in this world, working to build something bigger than yourself, um, that's where I find my satisfaction, right? It's not only in helping others, although that's a huge part of it, but it's working to build change that's going to last, that's going to stick, that's going to prevent future injustices from happening. That's what I find so compelling about this work. That's what gets me up in the morning mm. for people who need someone to fight for them. Um, I, can't, I can't stand the feeling that there are people out there who need a voice, who desperately need a voice, who maybe haven't written that letter out of despair or whose letter hasn't been opened yet. You know, we get 3,500 letters each year and there are only five of us here. Five. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, those feelings will get you up in the morning and we fight hard. We've been successful in exonerating almost 50 individuals so far. We know it takes years for each one. We know there's setbacks and you just got to grit your teeth and, and keep on fighting but there's no feeling in the world like watching someone walk out of prison a free, a free man or woman. It's like watching someone who's dead come back to life. Um, and to be able to help that person rebuild their life and then to be able to take their story, the story of the injustice that they endured and use that to build change. You know, that's, that's an exciting thing. It's a, it's a thing I'm very lucky to be able to do. What moment has stuck out to you? And I'm sure there's been a few, but in particular where you've worked so hard on the case and, and the person has been exonerated. Mm, so many moments. It's usually that walking out of prison moment that will stick with you. I'll, I remember in the West Memphis 3 case, which I, which I described a little bit ago, this high profile case out of Arkansas. I remember the day that the three defendants were going to be released um, they were going to be released out of straight out of the courtroom, right? The judge was going to bang the gavel and, and they would be free to go. And I remember arriving at the courthouse before all that happened. There were crowds of people outside, media, you know, TV cameras, the whole thing. And I went upstairs, I slipped into the building and, you know, I went upstairs in the courthouse to one of the back offices and it was a room through which the three defendants, you know, Jesse, Damien, and Jason, they had just been in that room and they'd been, they were being taken now to the courtroom. Um, and I remember being in that empty conference room where the guys had just been and noticing three sets of handcuffs on the table that were unlocked and open. And it had clearly just come off them, right? Because you take, you know, they'd been mm. wearing handcuffs and they'd been transported from the prison to the courthouse. And now they'd been uncuffed to go to the courtroom, you know, and get released. And I, I remember that really vividly. It was just me in the room, just staring at those handcuffs going, yeah, you know, this is what it's about. And Brendan, what, what is the update with him now? What's next for him? He's still in prison, obviously. He is. He is still in prison. We came within about 12 hours of getting him out during the course of his appeals, um, but we're ultimately blocked by an appellate court. Um, we're still fighting for Brendan Dassey. There's no doubt about it. We know based on our experience in these cases that you just grit your teeth and keep going and that's what we're doing. Um, someone in Brendan's position has options available still, very much so. 
Brendan can go back into court and file what's called a post-conviction petition based on newly discovered evidence of innocence or newly discovered evidence of a constitutional violation. And he also has the ability to approach the governor of Wisconsin and seek executive clemency. Um, so there's still plenty of road to tread for Brendan Dassey and plenty of fight still left in Brendan, still left in us. What's the most difficult choice that you've had to make to walk this path? Well, um, in the early years when we were starting the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth, when we were getting it off the ground, there were many years, several years, where I wasn't sure if I was going to have a salary the next year. Uh, we don't charge our clients. Every case we take, we take pro bono. Uh, we don't charge them a penny. We live on the salaries that Northwestern University pays us and um, donations. And there were years where I wasn't sure where the money was coming from next year to sustain the project or to sustain my personal job. And I remember sort of thinking, well, you know, yeah, that's, that's hard. That's stressful. Should I, should I be leaving? Should I be doing something else? Um, you know, should I be sort of protecting myself a little bit better in this, in this scenario? But if there's one thing that's driven me all these years, it is a deep and abiding conviction that this work is good. This work is valuable. We're going to make it. We're going to find a way to keep doing it because someone's got to do it and, and it's good to do. And we always found a way to make it happen. We always found the donations. We found the supporters. We found the grants. Um, and those were, in, that was in the early years when we were just getting off the ground. And now we're, you know, running on all cylinders. Um, and I'm, that's a risk I'm really glad I took. What do you want your legacy to be? Well, Brendan walking out of those prison doors would be, would be a pretty great legacy. Um, but, you know, on a larger scale, I, I think about my legacy. I want to build a, a center, an organization that fights for kids that will outlast me, that will train future lawyers to fight for people like Brendan, that will hopefully change their lives the way that Steve and Brendan and my my introduction to this world changed my life. Um, and I want to see more justice in this world. I want to see the law changed. I want to see courts figure out a way to throw out confessions like Brendan's that everybody can see are problematic. I want to see the way that police question kids change. I think everybody does. So if I can do something to bring that about, you know, that'll be all right with me. What are you most grateful for? I'm, I'm lucky that when we work with the people with whom we work, people who've been a very unlucky in their lives, you appreciate everything. Um, family, of course, um, the privileged position in which we find ourselves, being able to become who we are, become lawyers, uh, have the opportunity to fight these fights. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the mentorship of people like Steve who allowed me to come into this world and, and the world of wrongful convictions and who allowed me to live my dream of working on these kinds of cases. And you know what? I am grateful for people like Brendan because let me tell you, Brendan's a great guy. It is easy to fight for someone like Brendan. He is so hopeful. He is faithful. He's resilient. He's kind. Um, he's funny. and you know, there are moments of discouragement for anyone, for all of us in this case. 
but he's our rock. You know, he keeps us going. He really does. And I'm grateful for that. Absolutely. What is a life of greatness to you? Life of greatness to me is a life that is focused outside of you. It's focused on others, on helping others and on building something bigger than yourself, working towards ideals that are bigger than yourself, right? It's not just about personal comfort, contentment. Um, You know, those things are important, of course, but a life of greatness to be really great. It's about about doing something bigger than yourself, um, serving something bigger than yourself. Um, That's something that, that, you know, I try to do. Laura Nyrider, thank you for fighting the fight and making such amazing changes to this world. Oh, thanks so much. It's been an absolute honour. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.